Hello, everyone. My name is Devontae McLean, and I'm a member of the Bertrand Community Group. All right, so today Tanner's going to be teaching from Psalm 85. If you have the, the, um, one of the Bibles that we use here, the ESV, it will be on page 493. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and he'll bring you one. Okay, Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to the, his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in the land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Lord, the word of our God, I hear this every week, I'll forget, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Thank you, Dev. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. Welcome back. Uh, if you're new, my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. Uh, there's a connect card under your chair. If you would take a moment and fill that out, we would love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, and to see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. Um, if you're on your phone, we're using the ESV, and like Dev said, we're going to be in Psalm 85. So we're in our third our third week in our lament series. So just as a reminder, if you've missed or you've slept since then, lament means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. As an action, it's mourning the things in our lives and in this world that just aren't right. So in Christian lament, it is our prayer language. It's how we bring our sorrow to God. Lament is how we navigate between these two places where life is hard and God in his sovereignty, God in his kingly rule and reign and control is worthy to be trusted. So the last two weeks we've looked at some laments in the Psalms that were deeply personal for the psalmist that wrote them. And today we're going to look at another lament, but today... Um, this lament, while still being deeply personal for the author of the psalm, uh, it's a corporate lament. It's corporate by nature. This lament is not meant for strictly an individual. It is meant for an entire group of people. So this lament was written as a lament for the nation of Israel um, several hundred years before the incarnation or before the birth of Jesus. But it's most certainly applicable even today. It can be a lament for our nation or for the church. And there are definitely some personal elements of lament that are in view here as well. 
This psalm is written within the backdrop of some national catastrophe, perhaps a defeat in battle by some pagan nation. Uh, Some people think this was written after the exile or the captivity of the nation of Israel. And someone also suggests that this was written after they returned from captivity. All of this stuff is mentioned in Old Testament books, specifically the prophets. We really don't know the setting of this psalm, but what we do know is this. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are feeling the pangs of God's wrath. They're feeling the pangs of what appears to be God being distant. And they're feeling the pains of what feels like God deserting them. And I'm confident that all of us can identify with this feeling at some level. And, and this is a very important and, God has appeared to allow this judgment to take place because of the sins of the nation. A nation who throughout the Old Testament has forgotten God, has chosen to not walk in his commands and statutes given to them by his word. They're experiencing God's removal of his blessing from their lives and from their nation. Because of the sin that they have willingly given themselves over to, God has removed his hand of blessing from them. And yet, in this moment, the nation is actively choosing to trust and remember the previous working of the Lord, and they begin seeking forgiveness and repentance. This is a prayer for national revival. And it's much needed in our country, and it's certainly needed in our context where we have a huge number of professing Christians, and yet the line between the church and the world is oftentimes skewed, meaning there are a lot of people, and maybe you're one of them, that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then you choose not to follow God with your life. Or you say, you're a Christian, but that doesn't motivate any area of the way you live. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but this sin isn't as bad as some other sins that I've committed. Or this sin really isn't that big of a deal. Man, if that's you, I want you to hear this. God does take sin, all sin, very seriously. And God is calling you into holiness. And God is calling you into obedience. Not for the sake of rules and not for the sake of rule following, but out of a love and a delight for you. Within the will of God, there are blessings for you. So I want to really invite you, church, I want to invite you this morning to really invest deeply in this psalm in the next few moments. This psalm is going to invite us to pray for the Lord to work in and through the church in our day, in our time, and in our cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Man, and this psalm is also going to just call you to consider the severity of your own sin and the temperature of your heart when you consider sin in your own life. So with the context set, let's pray and let's dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Lord, I pray for the heavy-hearted, the grieving, the hurting, the mourning in here, Lord, that you would be near and present, a very present help in our time of need, as your word says. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't just be another Sunday where we hear from words on a page in our Bible 
Lord, but that you would impress deeply on our hearts our need for you and our need to follow you in faith, in holiness, in obedience. Lord, I pray for a revival to come. Church, I ask if you're willing if you would pray for yourself. That the Lord would reveal sin. That the Lord would root out pride and unbelief in your heart. And that the Lord would call you to trust him. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 85, beginning in verse 1. It says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Okay, so this psalm of lament, like all psalms of lament, begins with a direct address. The psalmist calls out to God, and you can almost kind of feel his exasperation. Lord. If you look at your Bibles, you see the word Lord is used in all capital letters. This is an appeal to Yahweh, God's personal name, God's covenantal name. So when Moses encountered the burning bush in Exodus, God spoke to him through the burning bush and says, Go back to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, Who shall I say is sending me? And God responds in what our modern English translations say, The great I am, the I am, I am who I am, is sending you. I am. That's the name that, that this is using. That I am, it translates to Yahweh. This is the name that, that God used. The psalmist is calling back to the God of the covenant, who made a covenant, which means a promise, an everlasting agreement. God has made a covenant with his people to rescue and redeem them. The writer of this psalm is leaning into this covenantal God, remembering things past. He's calling upon the faithfulness of God. This verse is pointing us back to a time of old, and the psalmist is moving to a place to ask the Lord to do it yet again. Depending on when the psalm was written, there are several times in several generations in Old Testament history where, by and large, the people have moved away from obedience to God. Therefore, they were forgetting the promises of God to them. It's like most of the book of Judges. And all of the prophets, for example, if you want to go back and read it, we find oftentimes that within the nation of Israel, the people are living in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin and worldliness. And the Lord has specifically commanded them to not do these things. And so the psalmist is calling the former favor of the Lord to mind in spite of all this. In verse 1 he says, Lord, you've been favorable to your people before. Lord, you've restored your people before. In verse 2, he says, Lord, you have forgiven your people from their sins before. And in verse 3, he says, Lord, you've relented from your anger and your wrath against your people before. Do it again. The psalmist has given us a theology of not some distant God, not some indifferent God, a God who doesn't inter interfere with the day-to-day -day lives of people. This is not the God that the psalmist is portraying here. No, the psalmist is giving us a picture of a God who acts. 
This isn't a picture of a God who is purely just out there in some philosophical or ethereal realm. No, this is a God that throughout the history of the nation and throughout the history of the world has been at work. He has created, he has clothed, he has fed, and he has protected his people. He has redeemed them from slavery. He has lifted them up and he has brought them down. And he has turned the hearts of kings in order to accomplish his purposes. In a few centuries from the time that the psalm was written, this God would dwell among us and die for us to accomplish his purposes in the person and work of Jesus. The word given to us in verse 1 is favorable. In the Hebrew, this word is like God's delight. So this word is akin to delight, meaning the things that give us pleasure. So these verses are calling us to consider the source of God's pleasure as well. God's pleasure is in his creation. Namely, God's pleasure is in his people. This reminds us of God's nature and character as a loving father. This is a God that has given good gifts to his children, and it delighted the Lord to do so. It delighted the Lord in the days of the Exodus for God to give the land to his people. And in order to give the land of promise to the people of promise, God first had to rescue and redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. And so this is also a picture then, not only of a covenant God, not only of a loving God with delight and pleasure, but this is also a picture of a God who saves. And this is leading us to a request from him, to him, to save and save yet again. We are given a picture of a God that is unchangeable. The theological word is immutable meaning that God is unchanging over time or even unable to change. We see this in James 1, Hebrews 6, 2 Timothy 2. I like what Malachi 3, 6 says. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Man, if God could change or would change, then he would not be God. If God were not God, then we would be hopeless. But God doesn't change. Therefore, since God doesn't change, we can now reason that God's delight in his creation, namely God's delight to his people, God's delight is in you, Christian. And if God's delight is in you, and God is unchangeable, his delight in you is unchanging as well. I think sometimes we either approach God out of fear or we don't approach God at all because of fear, because we think God is mad at us. Anybody else? Just me? Cool. Um, we approach God expecting reproof, or we hide from God not wanting reproof. And while God does discipline those that he loves, God is also pleased with us if we are in Christ on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness to us, not based on our own merit. The cross of Christ, then, is granted salvation to believers, and by this, it's evidence through Jesus that God is pleased with you as a believer. Imputed righteousness means this. When, when Christ died on the cross, and when you came to faith in Jesus, all of your sin, all of your guilt, 
all of your shame was transferred to Jesus as if it were his. And then Christ's righteousness, his perfection, his holiness were transferred to you as if you had never sinned. Not even once. And now when God looks at you, Christian, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your brokenness. He sees Christ's righteousness given to you freely by the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is why we call it amazing grace. We have done nothing to deserve this. But God is delighted in us and is delighted by Jesus' sacrifice to us. God created us with delight. And when things went terribly, terribly wrong because of sin, God's delight would not allow him to turn the other way. And God's loving delight for us was pleased to rescue and redeem us and forgive us. Man, a father's delight in his children sometimes means we put up with a lot of our own kids' sin issues, right? My love for my kids, although it's not perfect always or even ever, if I'm honest, is not meant to be merit-based. Like, my kids don't have to earn my love based on what they do. When our kids are wayward or disobedient, we endure with them with the same type of love that we have received from Christ in spite of this waywardness. Man, so if you're feeling this, if you're feeling this fear of God, feeling like you have to hide from God or feeling like you have to clean yourself up enough to approach God, man, I would pray that God would reveal himself to you this morning, that God would turn your heart back to his nature and his character as a loving and unchanging father. Man, this psalm is calling us to remembrance for the nation and for us that the Lord has been faithful, faithful to us in the past, and therefore his past faithfulness to me commands my present trust today. This is both a corporate reminder and a, and a personal reminder for you. So the lamenting psalmist moves directly from addressing God, which is the first step of lament, to complaint and petition, and he does so via like an implied confession of sin. These are steps two and three in, in the lamenting process, and these steps are done in conjunction here. Look at verse four. It says, Restore us again, O God, the, uh, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So again, it's, uh, it's possible that this psalm was written after the Jewish exiles had returned home. It's also possible it was written during their exile when the people of God were captured and then kicked out of their homeland. Regardless of the setting of the psalm, it really doesn't matter. It appears contextually that regardless of their circumstances, the people of Israel had not repented of any sin or any unbelief or any idolatry and continued to do whatever they wanted to do. It sounds like a pretty self-serving nation doing whatever they wanted to do in the name of individuality and self being the highest form of autonomy or, and authority. 
Like, there's really nothing new under the sun, right? What I'm about to say next is not a super popular position to take because we don't like to think about God like this. This nation has been persistent in sin. And God is being rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And also because he is a just and righteous God, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord in his love is disciplining his children for holiness. His people, the nation of Israel, is guilty of breaking the first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. They were guilty of that, and so are we. And this is where the lament and complaint begins to take place. The psalmist is lamenting the recent problems that are depriving them of God's favor, that are depriving them of, God's, uh, of enjoying God's blessings. Their sin had not only cost them politically and circumstantially, like they're possibly in exile, they did go into exile, they're kind of laughed at by the pagan nations. It's costing them politically and circumstantially because the Lord has appeared to remove his protective hand off of them for a time. But it's also costing them relationally as well. God has allowed them to wander away from him. Man, that's the thing about sin. It will always take you further and further and further further away from God and his gifts than you ever thought possible. When you sin, listen to me for a second. When you sin, it's more than just breaking rules. It's more than just disobedience to God, which is a big deal, but it's more than that. But when you sin, your sin is actually breaking fellowship with God. When we sin, we are actively saying, we don't need you, God. And so God is allowing them in this moment the desires of their heart to wander away and try it apart from him. And actually, while this may seem cold and mean and like God is being indifferent towards them, by allowing Israel to struggle and suffer a consequence of their own mistakes, it's leading them to a place of repentance and dependency. You see, God is actually acting for their good and for his glory in spite of them. In their wanderings, in their waywardness, he is allowing them to see and experience just how needy we are apart from God. The psalmist acting as a mouthpiece for the nation is realizing the folly of their sin and asking the Lord, God, restore us again. This is a confession of sin, an admittance of guilt. They wouldn't need to be restored if they hadn't done all the things that had caused their ruin in the first place, right? Man, this is a big and bold prayer. The Hebrew word we get is turn us, God. Listen, here's something we need to realize. This isn't a universal principle in every trial we experience, but it is certainly worth noting. Sometimes trials happen in our life because life is hard. Other times trials happen in our life because we're persistent in sin. 
And that just leads to some natural consequences for our choices. And I don't say any of that to heap a bunch of shame or guilt upon you, but it is true. Sometimes things happen to us because we put ourselves in sinful circumstances. And there's grace for you there. But our trials do sometimes arise out of sins. And I want to lovingly submit to you this. Until you are willing to take steps of faith and obedience and leave those sins at the foot of the cross, these problems are going to persist. If you are willingly walking in ongoing, unrepentant sin, don't be surprised if the sin you're in has led you to whatever hardship you're in. And don't be surprised if it keeps you there. We need to turn from our sin. Yes. However, it is God's kindness that shows us this. It is God's kindness that leads us to the faith necessary for repentance. It is God and only God that can do the turning of our hearts by faith in Him. God, our Savior, must work in our hearts in order for us to be saved. We cannot do it on our own. And the psalmist is recognizing this. He is crying out for deliverance from God. And man, when we turn to the Lord in prayer, even during sin and difficulty, we are entering into a battle, a competing competition for our affections between God and the world. We're entering into a battle to be turned away from sin and back to the Lord. This psalm is teaching us that where sin increases... Grace increases all the more because we can't out-sin God's willingness or God's ability to forgive us. And when our posture is one of humble repentance, God ceases to be angry with us. And if, we were, if we're in Christ, God was never angry with us at all. There's only love and mercy and grace to be found with our Heavenly Father because of the cross of Jesus. Spurgeon says, May all those who are now enduring the hidings of God's face seek with deep earnestness to be turned anew to the Lord, for so all their despondencies come to an end. We see the psalmist asking the Lord to revive a nation who had once received the blessing of the Lord. Amidst his petitioning, he is confident in the God of his salvation. He's lamenting, he's questioning God, and these are leading him to a place of steady remembrance of a faithful God who throughout the history of their nation has been pleased to dwell with his people and endure with his people. He is beckoning the Lord, show us the steadfast love, show us the love you have for your people. God revives this nation by revealing himself new and afresh to them. The plea is, grant us your salvation, Lord. This is both a present request and a reminder of the former days. Lord, do it again, is what the author is saying. So I must confess a few things to you, friends and neighbors in here. Um, Sometimes I'm pretty cynical. Uh, Don't laugh, it's not funny. Uh, I don't like it. I don't like it about myself, but sometimes I look around the country in general, and more specifically, I look at the town and the goings-on here in our, like, hyper-Christian context, and I think, well, I'm trying my best, and that's all I can do. 
And I think that's the posture of a lot of us. It feels like the longer you've been in Odessa, the more you take on that posture. Odessa is what it is, and we just accept things and don't really pray for the gospel to break through and for God to do a work. In verse 6, the psalmist isn't praying that the Lord would help them to turn, but that it is the Lord that does the turning. We need to pray that the Lord would work and acknowledge that if he doesn't work in us, then we really have no hope. There is a posture amongst many of us, including myself, if we, you know, like if we pray, and if we pray at all, uh, we aren't praying big, bold prayers. We pray in ways in which we are not set up for disappointment, right? Anybody? Okay. As we're walking through this lament series, and as we're living in this place that has a lot of Jesus language, but not a lot of Jesus, uh, I want us to really take the posture of the psalmist here. Where we pray and ask God for some big things. David Platt says something in his commentary that I want to share with you. He says, we're not called to merely pray safe. We're not called to merely pray self-protecting prayers, realistic prayers, faith-saving prayers. He says, so often I pray prayers that match the normal patterns I see in my life. In my everyday life, hard-to-reach people continue to be hard-to-reach. In my everyday life, the church exerts little influence on the world around us. But on page after page of Scripture, God is seeking to convince us that He has options. God intervenes. He brings life where there was death. He can cause His Word to not return void. He can bring reviving grace to any person you know, any resistant person, and He could do it by the end of the week. And yet, for many of us, our posture is often, it is what it is. And I can do nothing about it. But that's not the posture we see in the Bible. Our sin, if you are a Christian, our sin is not the final word. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, because of his sacrifice to us, completed by the means of the resurrection of Jesus, there is forgiveness for our sins. And now, as believers, we get to approach God with confidence as sons and daughters and ask him to act. Because apart from this, there is nothing we can do about it. Man, the psalmist is in this place. God, restore this nation or we're doomed. The church of God in 2022 in America in general, and for our purposes in Odessa, needs to also take on this posture. God, we need you to act in a culture that has God on our lips, but oftentimes not God in our hearts. God, we can't change anything about this place, but you can. God, we lament a culture that is lukewarm, caring more about worldly things that are fleeting, things that only satisfy for a second and leave us feeling worse than before. Lord Jesus, we need your salvation to come. It is only by your grace to us that any of us can be saved and have access to such wondrous love. Verse 8. 
Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our Lord will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is where the psalmist has moved from lament to petition to a resolute trust in the Lord. These verses are filled with ways the nation is trusting. It says God will speak. Salvation is near. Faithfulness will spring up. The Lord will give what is good. But within this trust is a warning. In verse 8, it says, Be warned, don't turn back to that sin, brothers. Paul says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? My man. God's salvation to you, God's grace to you, isn't an invitation to carry on as if the cross had never happened. The cross isn't an invitation for you to persist in sin. There's grace and mercy to you. The grace and mercy of God to you is calling you to a changed life. Not to continue to do what you want and expect God to be okay with that. God has called you out of darkness and into light. Why would you claim to be a Christian and act like Jesus is an add-on to your life? If this is your posture, you may think you're a Christian and you may not be. If you are living in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin, it is possible, maybe even probable, that you have not experienced this grace on a personal level. The psalm shows us that following God is more than just a verbal acknowledgement that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It is a whole life commitment to follow him in faith and obedience. Verses 8 and 9 of the psalm give us a picture of deliverance. A few thousand years removed from the time of the writing of this psalm, we get to view this psalm through the promises, through the lens of a resurrected and reigning King Jesus. Jesus has orchestrated peace, meaning that God, Christian, God is no longer against you. You are now no longer at war with God, the God of the universe. There's peace. This is the peace that Psalm 85 is referring to. The text says it's peace to the saints. And that's not the Catholic understanding of saints. This psalm gives us the true meaning of saints. Saints are believers in Jesus. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. Isn't that right, St. Aaron? Through Jesus, there's peace. Peace from the wrath of God and peace from the judgment of God by the grace of God to you on the cross of Christ. If your faith is in Christ, the text says the fear of the Lord leads you to salvation. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I pray that you're recognizing your need for him, recognizing that in him there is blessings and apart from him there is judgment. Praying that you would consider Jesus this morning. 
The Lord is the only one that can save you. It is not by good works. It is not by trying hard. It is not by having your good deeds outnumber your bad ones. You are hopeless apart from Jesus. Place your faith in him. Man, I love verse 10 so much. I wouldn't consider myself like a hopeless romantic type guy, but uh, this verse is beautiful. It brought a little tear to my eye. Uh, it says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Steadfast love. It's this Hebrew word. It's, the word in Hebrew is pronounced hesed, and it's untranslatable. So all the English translations usually just have steadfast love or loving kindness attached to this word hesed. But it carries this weight of being steady and sure and an unmovable anchor of hope. And it has met faithfulness. And they have met together in the person and work of Jesus. This word faithfulness carries with it this idea of being constant through the duration. There is a firmness. There is a resoluteness. So what that means for us is that Jesus at the incarnation, at his birth, was faithful to fulfill the eternal decree to make a way for creation to be restored back to God. God's love for creation, meeting the faithful and willing sacrifice of Jesus, they meet and are fulfilled through Christ's death and resurrection. The righteousness of Jesus his right standing as the perfect and complete sacrifice. He who became sin, though knowing no sin himself, came and died for the sins of believers, accomplishing peace for the saints. Christ's righteousness, completed through his willing obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, has created peace for us, and now we can be adopted into God's family. In a prophetic statement in verse 12, the text says, The Lord will give us what is good. And he has given us himself. And that is very good. And in the day of the psalm, the writer could say, Yes, salvation is near because he trusts by faith that God will act. In our day, we can say with confidence that salvation is here because the Lord has acted. It is finished. He has done it. Our weary hearts can now rejoice. One of my favorite songs here is, is called Rejoice, and it says our redemption is accomplished, knowing he, being Jesus, has won the war. All our sicknesses, all our sorrows, Jesus has carried up the hill. He's walked this path before us. He is walking with us still, turning tragedy to triumph, turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle, so take heart and stand amazed. Rejoice. So here's where I want to leave us with this corporate psalm of lament. We live in a broken world. Life is really hard. And sin has devastating consequences. So today we have a few choices. We can let that lead us to despair, where we look at our nation or the state of our churches in this town or the state of things in our own life and feel really hopeless. We can let this lead us to passive acceptance. It is what it is and there's nothing we can do about it. Or 
This is where I'm hoping we all land. Or we can allow this truth that sin is an ever-present reality to push us to more faith and dependency in Jesus. This is the grace of lament, that we can mourn the brokenness in our world and in our life, and we can mourn not as hopeless exiles, but as redeemed people saved by the love and grace of God to us. This can lead us to faith and trust in Jesus, or we can choose to remain in our sin and outside of God's forgiving grace. Those are our choices. Lament is inviting us to not be passive bystanders to our feelings and to the goings on in the world, but lament is an invitation to go to God because God is the only one who can help us. Man, if I'm honest, this series has been really timely for me. Um, I felt a lot of uh, heaviness this week. So we, we adopted four kids. Most of you know that. We found out uh, on Thursday that uh, a couple of our kids have siblings that are now in the system that we didn't know about. And I went through, like, some lamenting stages on Thursday. Man, I, I lamented the, the brokenness that, that sin has created in a family. And then I lamented the trauma that it has caused several children over the course of the last decade and a half or so. And I lamented the brokenness that sin has created in relationships. I then went on to had to repent of my own unbelief that I needed to step in and do something because God wasn't doing enough. And that led me to lamenting of my own pride and the ways that I've allowed my own sin to cloud my view of the Lord who is sovereign even in circumstances where I can't see him working. And through this process of lamenting, I woke up Friday morning still very sad, but with just an overwhelming amount of peace. A peace which is anchored in God's past and present faithfulness to me and my kids. And a confidence in his continued future faithfulness to me because he has never let me down. Lamenting leads to trust because God is worthy to be trusted. The cross says that he is working on our behalf. Our biggest need isn't our government or our world to be fixed, but our sin and death to be dealt with. And our biggest need has been met. So we can mourn, but we don't mourn as people without hope. Church, I'd ask you to just consider your life today. Are you praying for the Lord to work in your life? Are you asking for the Lord to reveal sin in your life? And is that revelation leading you to faith and repentance and action? Or are you just going through the motions? Church, this text is calling us to pray for revival as in our land as well. And are you praying for the Lord to revive his church? Are you praying that the Lord would use you by his good pleasure to bring about missional engagement to those around you that don't know him? Man, are you willing to even pray for that? We are all here in this time, for this time, in Odessa, whether you like it or not, in this cultural moment. We're not here by accident. 
The Lord has called us to this place to be used by him. Look, we didn't plant this church out of a rebellion or thinking we could do it better than everybody else in town, but out of a conviction that our town needs more gospel-centered churches. And so we're, we're pursuing that. Would you pray for that? So I want to do something a little different this morning. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. I just kind of want to walk through a, a little bit of a corporate lament with you guys as we just kind of consider the state of our nation, the state of our community. Um, I feel like I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I feel like Christianity is being pushed to the margins of society, being pushed to the fringes. The church at some level has lost its prophetic voice in our community. And if I'm honest, we've earned a lot of that. Like, when one generation assumes the gospel, the next generation will lose the gospel. And so I think we're living in light of some consequences of just several generations of bad discipleship. I don't, I don't know what it is. Now I'm just rambling. But anyways, I do want to lament together, and I want to mourn towards Jesus together. And so this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, some of this, especially depending on how Baptist you are, some of this is going to be kind of weird. Um, it's going to be okay. But I just want you to like close your eyes. Before you close your eyes, keep looking at me. Um, I just want you to take a posture of prayer with your hands open out in front of you like this, confessing to the Lord that we have nothing to give. That's what this posture means. Empty hands we bring. And so now you can close your eyes, but with hands out in front of you, I'm going to just lead us in this prayer. Lord, our God and Savior, You've been gracious to your bride, the church, to save us, to transform us into the image of you, Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, we feel the heaviness and the darkness in our country and in our community. God, it feels like so much of what we value is under attack. Our culture seems to be against us. Our marriages and our, and our families and our very faith is being pushed to the margins and pushed to the fringes at what feels like every level of society. Government and civil institutions. Lord, for, for decades or longer, the church has assumed the gospel and we've not been bold with our lives. We've not been bold with our witness for you, O oh Lord. Lord, we've functioned out of fear of man and not always a delight in you. And Lord, we're living in the consequences of this posture. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. Turn us, Lord. Save us, Lord. Move in our community with power, with the power and presence of your Holy Spirit like you did in the book of Acts, like you're doing in other parts of the world. Lord, move here. We cannot make it on our own, oh God. We need the cross.
We need the Savior's blood. Impress on the hearts of men and women the need for you and the need for your salvation. Lord, you are our salvation. We trust in you because you are worthy of our trust. Be near to us, O God. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.